0: Today's film is adapted from a play, which is a little bit unusual for a war film. It's hard to imagine what it would even look like on stage because this is a war film with a diversity of settings. Infantry charges, machine gun nests, mortars, jeeps, tanks, and Jack Palance using crazy eyes to communicate fragmented emotion. The onstage version would be necessarily confined to drinking booze, seething, and being bitches to each other. This is one of the few movies where the battle scenes actually lighten the air. We open on a weirdly staged battlefield betrayal, a thing you don't see too often portrayed. Palance is leading a squad to take out a German pillbox. Their captain, Eddie Albert, ensures them reinforcements wait in reserve. But their captain is a coward. He hesitates and withdraws, and Palance's squad is cut down. The two men, imbalanced by rank, are pitched against each other for the rest of the film. Albert plays maybe the most contemptible officer we've ever seen. Not cruel, but unfathomably incapable of leadership. Remember, this is peak motion picture production code, so stories about cowardly officers betraying their men walked pretty thin ice. Really, it's meant to be a submarine film. That's a place where officers can go out of control. Come to think of it, a submarine setting would be pretty easy to imagine as the basis of a play. Wait a minute. Playwrights of the world? Why are there no submarine plays? Is it because there's no downstage? Hmm. Everyone enters stage left and then just stays on stage for the rest of the play? Hmm. What about a modern dance set in a submarine? You know, the kind from the 90s where a group of dancers in white leotards run across the front of the stage and then... Run the opposite way across the back of the stage while the soloists stand up and kneel down. They could be wearing navy whites instead, and the soloists could turn giant imaginary handles on valves while the lead dancer looks through an imagined periscope. God, I used to go to so many of those modern dance productions. I was always dating someone in the chorus. It got so when a girl would walk into a cafe with leg warmers and a gym bag, I would just put my big pen down in the spiral notebook where I was recording my big ideas and just straight up walk over and say, Hi, I'm John. It's probable we're going to date, so why don't you just join me at my table and we can start deciding what we're going to fight about. Anyway, this film, ATTACK, is very friendly fire because, well, it has an exclamation mark right in the title. And also, these major stars were not part of the accepted war movie actors of the period. Think about how many movies we've watched with, say, Lee Marvin. He would make sense in this movie. But Eddie Albert? What is he even doing here? Shouldn't he be playing a comedically unlikable fish-out-of-water dad? And Jack Palance? Why does he always look 59 years old? And Lee Marvin? Oh. Right. Lee Marvin is in this movie, too. Right. That makes sense. I don't trust soldiers who shine their shoes every day. Today on Friendly Fire, attack! Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What is Uh huh.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's got an esprit to garbage pail. I'm Ben Harrison.
2: I'm Adam Pranica.
1: And I'm John Roderick.
2: Attack! I I never thought I'd know what a youthful Jack Palance looked like. He seems like a man who is permanently 57 years old. It was so hard for me to make jack palance
1: be somebody i was rooting for because he's such a villain character he's always played villains and making him like the leading man is such a is is a decision that my brain could barely process
2: jack palance is like 65 percent of the way to going full chuck bronson (laughs) in i think uh some very desirable ways in this film anyway not a leading man face
0: what, was he a, was he a hero in this movie? Yeah, he was the main guy. I mean, I watched the movie. <laughs> he was the main guy, but would you describe his character as the hero?
1: A hero? He's not like the most likable guy there is. He's really powered by rage.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean, if you were stepping up to this film and saw the cast and and thought to yourself, "Who's going to be the one motivated by rage?" I would have bet Lee Marvin and it wouldn't have been close. It's definitely yeah. not Eddie Albert. No. Wow. Yeah. I feel like this is a
0: really brave performance. Eddie Albert was a huge star at this point in yeah. the fifties. And, uh, but you know, like Mr. Wholesome, what a, su- what a, what a, what a surprising performance.
1: Do you guys feel reassured or dismayed by this character? Because I like Part of me was like, oh, like feckless idiots that think that everything should be run like a business and that they're the they're the guy to do it are like a feature of American life for time immemorial. And it's not new that we have these yo-yos running around, like running our government right now or whatever. I guess, you know, who knows what's going on when this episode comes out? I shouldn't say who's running our government right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We haven't had a good track record of predictions for elections between you and me, Ben.
1: We sure haven't. But like, you know, you hear people say this all the time. like, Like, why don't we run this more like a business? And this guy like makes that case in this movie from 1956 and is just as much of a boob in this era as he is in our era, but there's always still people that think like that and people that are receptive to that argument.
0: It's an ancient American argument that, uh, that we need those, we need those compromised political people out and just get in some efficient managers. That's what the world needs. More managers, (laughs) more layers of management. I have people skills. But he's also he's also um you know a classic sort of child of privilege who's had a soft road for him paved by his overbearing father and the father is like has got political muscle and that political muscle extends all the way to directly to his commanding officer who's his hometown like hometown older brother figure really uh, an American
1: An American story. Yeesh. The constant delight of doing Friendly Fire is seeing an old movie like this and and finding something that feels this contemporary... One thing that didn't feel contemporary was his name, Erskine Cooney.
0: Erskine Cooney.
1: <laughs> when they're talking about him, they're like, Erskine is like uh, not going to be happy about this decision, Lieutenant. <laughs> and and then Cooney is not going to be happy about that either. And I was like, is, are these two different men? Are, is that a last name and a last
0: name? or <laughs> Erskine is, isn't on the list of top 100 baby names right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this this really put people off of naming their babies Erskine. Like, whoa, like the guy in that movie? He sucked.
0: I really felt watching this movie that, you know, there are a lot of, just as there are a lot of different 2020s, there were a lot of different 1956s. And we've seen movies made in 1956. We've, we have a sense of what 1956 was in terms of uh, Buddy Holly and... Chevys and you know malt shops kind of 1956 but there was also there was also the 1956 that was um, you know defined kind of by method acting and on the waterfront and the glass menagerie or um, death of a salesman you know there was this like real boom in sort of New York like gritty realistic plays with actors who were super emotive. And if you think about like movies from the thirties and forties, you know, there just wasn't any of that kind of like, I just want to, you know, it's not Rambo. It's like, the it's the good version of, you know, guys just like really sweating every the, line. The
2: good version of Rambo, AKA first blood. Yeah. It's the good
0: version of Rambo, AKA on the waterfront. Uh, so yeah, i really felt how <laughs> 1956 this was but especially that 1956 that's
2: a great point yeah thank you it's just
0: the method acting is so strong in this movie like so Palance and and eddie albert both are doing that really over the top emoting that I, I think now i don't know i don't know wh- how it landed with you guys but of everything in the movie and we haven't talked about the special effects yet and I'm sure we're going to get there but of everything in the movie like that's the thing that really made this feel like a period piece.
2: In describing it that way you're saying that it did not work for you. Is that, is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, the um that kind of hanky clutching uh from like you know male actors who are who are going through their sh- shit on the screen. Uh, but like really cranked, like it is in this movie. It feels a little bit to me like, like crazy eyes acting. I like it. Instead of giving an actually sort of human portrayal, we get a lot of this like bugged out eyes and like, I'm gonna get you, sucker. Kind of, uh, like just like, whoa, dial it back. I mean, I know it's wartime and I know you lost your friends and everything, but like, I could do with a little bit more Tom Hanks handshaking can't pour his (laughs) can't pour the flask into the glass.
2: It's the contrasts that work for me though, because like for every ten out of ten cooney scene you get, you get a Woodruff who is the chillest of the chill. Like this is a movie about reaction to me. Like how people respond to a character like Cooney, how people respond to a character like Costa is something that I personally responded to. Like, what do you do when when the people in power are acting unpredictably and making choices that affect your life in awful ways? I mean, if if all of them were methoding around in the way that you're describing, John, I don't think this would be a pleasant movie to watch, but I think it it really made me think a lot Because of those peripheral characters and how they responded to to the methods as you're describing them. This movie came out
1: 11 years before a previous Friendly Fire episode film, The Dirty Dozen, which was also directed by Robert Aldrich. I feel like the performances in that feel much more modern and, and natural to me. Do you think that this is evidence of uh, an author that hasn't quite got full control of his powers yet? Or do you think it's like something about 1956 and the kind of acting that was capturing the imaginations of these performers?
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's that I think it's the I think it's a school of acting that was new and felt like the future and really did influence a lot of actors and and change the way acting in film is done but you know it sort of depends on whose hand you put that set of skills in and I I think you know Marlon Brando blew everyone's mind with his technique in this era and I think a probably a lot of male male leading men watched those Brando performances and it was just like all the bands that heard the strokes record for the first time. And all of a sudden they had a bunch of distortion on their vocals. <laughs> it just feels like there are some actors who, because Lee Marvin is busy just Lee Marvining up the fucking scenes that he's in. He's, he's <laughs> never not Lee Marvin. And he as Lee Marvin in 1956 as he is in 1976. He looks and acts exactly the same age. I don't understand it.
1: (laughs) His hat seemed less jaunty in this movie.
0: He he did not have the jaunty hat in this movie. You're right.
2: Didn't it feel like this film used him in such an interesting way? I wanted him to save me and our main characters throughout this film. And his character is used so sparingly. I felt like I was on that knife's edge of, is this the scene where Lee Marvin is going to save us? And He never shows. He never shows until the end after the shit's done. And I thought that was a a really interesting technique uh, in terms of how you use a star and how you don't use him in a film like this.
0: I don't care how you do it.
1: Just do it.
2: What's nuts is that Eddie Albert
0: was 50 when this movie came out and Lee Marvin was 32. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> wow! <What? laughs> some real city miles on lee marvin right my god that is shocking he started smoking when he was 12 though <laughs> but,
0: but but that but, but that doesn't that doesn't hold up because lee marvin looked exactly the same as this in
2: 1980
0: yeah, yeah. right so i mean yeah. it's not like he, he he must have looked like this in high school but but he clearly commands any scene he's in and there was no
1: question that he outranked Eddie Albert. When Lee Marvin was, a, was in the Marine Corps, do you think he just like walked into rooms and like officers would salute him? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would salute him. I'd salute him at any time in his career. Yeah. <laughs> I do see what you're saying, Adam. But, you know, I, I couldn't help but, but feel like there's a reason that Jack Palance and Eddie Albert ended up as TV actors. Hmm. Right. Like, you know, both Palance and Albert had big hits, but on the small screen.
2: Do you think Robert Aldrich didn't have the I don't know, like, like directors of a certain esteem can ask a lot of their actors, no matter how notable or big they are. I feel like Robert Aldrich had a chance to tell Jack Palance not to make that face as a corpse. (laughs) And for whatever reason, like couldn't muster the confidence to do that.
0: Oh, I bet you he wanted it. You know, I I really do think that, that that's the, we we don't think about fashion in acting. We, we, you Mm. see it all the time in the movies we watch that like certain kinds of cinematography will go in and out of fashion, certain kinds of sound. Um, anytime Denzel bites into an onion, it's like, well, (laughs) that was the style of the time, but we don't think about like, the fashion that, that kind of goes through acting circles. And, um, so if you think about this movie as coming after steel helmets and fixed bayonets, which we watched earlier this year, movies set in the early fifties where it's like gritty, you know, and there's this kind of realism to it, even though it's clearly shot on a, on a backlot, Sprayed with Christmas tree foam. <laughs> you you remember feeling like the style, the 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 fashion of those portrayals contrasted with John Wayne movies, which were being made on, right on the other side of of Hollywood, where right. there's flags waving and a bunch of trumpets. I think that they were making this movie over in a in a small corner of Hollywood and thought they were doing something really real and i i don't think i don't think palance was chewing up the scenery and everybody else was like settle down i think everybody on this movie was trying to make that movie
2: fragile fox two to fragile fox one
1: i was writing a draft of an intro for another episode of this show the other day and i was thinking about there being a sort of reverence in world war ii movies even movies like this that feel a little uh you know a little bit more like edgy and like they are making l- larger critiques about uh the, m- the way the military runs or or kinds of people that might find themselves in the military nobody is going like should we even be in this war in this movie it's a like what do you do when you're in the right war but with the wrong people kind of movie
0: yeah that's a good observation right that this is a movie about a about bad officer and you know, and a level of sedition, but the sedition we're, we're asked to forgive because America's conduct in the war is just and defeating the Nazis is just, and you know, this is another one of those movies where it's like, if you'll just get out of our way and let us do the war.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This is like that noogity middle officer class that, that this movie is like, primarily focused on where they're not generals and they're not enlisted
2: middle management warriors
1: yeah and what a terrifying idea to imagine yourself being enlisted under somebody like cooney
0: cooney would be totally successful if it weren't for the fact that he had this these gung-ho officers you know lieutenant costa's like go get him, go get him. you know if costa had just been back drinking booze and playing poker too yeah that whole company would have gotten out of the war.
2: Didn't you think a lot about the people who make decisions alone, though? Like it, in in many scenes in this film, you know, Cooney's inclination is to take an order from above him and then twist that into a thing he's more comfortable with. He's prevented by doing that entirely because there are always other people in the room going, that's not what the guy said on the radio. What are you thinking? <laughs> There's a backstop to him in this film that provides a constant tension. Yeah. I
1: think that also, though, like the movie kind of fails to make him seem like outright incompetent because like the main disagreement is like, okay, Costa, you're going to take a tiny group of guys in and like use this farmhouse as cover and see what's going on in this town that we're supposed to capture. And Costa's argument is like, let's go in with everyone we've got just in case there's lots of Germans there. But I didn't I didn't get the sense that, like, if they had done the thing Costa wanted, they would have fared any better. Like, it, it wasn't like they were equipped to take on a bunch of tanks at the you know, full strength of the of Cooney's command. Right.
2: It's that Costa gets murdocked over and over again in this film. And you keep waiting for the moment when Jack Polance is going to like grab the microphone and yeah. say, Cooney.
3: I'm coming to get you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does tell Cooney he's going to like stick a grenade up his butt or something.
2: That was the moment. Like that was the Rambo moment for me <laughs> yeah. where I was like, fuck yeah. Like this that's that's Costa taking over the film after a long absence
0: you know woodruff lieutenant woodruff who's the kind of the guy that knows what's what but also he doesn't actually want to rebel he wants he's a peacekeeper guy he is the one that suggests initially looking at the map and the lay of the land oh what we need to do is do a pincer movement here we'll send a squad in from the left a squad in from the right and it's Tooney, that's like no, no, no. That's not the plan. That I see the plan. The plan is to just send Costa right up the middle. And so when Costa walks in and looks at it, he's like, "What? That's the plan?" And there's all he and he and Woodruff are looking at each other like, "Oh man, this is just one more incident of total bullshit here."
2: To what extent is it is it murder by mission versus? Versus just an idiot coming up with a bad plan. I wondered that too. Did you did you feel an undercurrent to to the idea that it could be it could be murder?
1: I mean, I think that there are Machiavellian characters in this film, but I don't think Cooney is one of them. I don't think he's. I don't think he has enough guile. He's shithouse drunk when he makes these decisions.
0: I kept waiting for him to be sinister. You expect someone who's completely incompetent and in a position of power to recognize their own incompetence and to try and mask it and to try and deny it or whatever. There's something about Cooney where he's completely incompetent and kind of convinced he's doing a good job, which is the definition of someone who's completely incompetent, you know, and that, that, that was the method acting moment of the movie that really, that kind of drove me upstairs to get another bowl of popcorn was when Eddie Albert was rolling around on his bed going, my father never loved me. And I was like, hmm, I don't know, man. I mean, in 56, maybe my father never loved me would would be a, a thing that everybody in the audience would be like gripping drama.
2: It's shocking to me. You were talking about this earlier, John, like the choice that Eddie Albert made to even be in this film as this character. There are two parts to that decision The the first decision is the playing of the shitbag as it is up until that scene, the scene where he has the breakdown about his father. And then you get an entirely different scene and another reason to say no to being in this film if you're him. And that's when he's in that bed having his freak out.
0: This is the era when Frank Sinatra made The Man with the Golden Arm. And he went from being um, like a skinny bebop kid that nobody took seriously whose career was on the rocks To being considered like a serious dude, you know, to get cast in movies, Frank Sinatra of all the things, because he played this, you know, he played a junkie and played it like, and these are roles that like Dean Martin never took because Dean Martin was always the, the boo, 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 boo guy with the cowboy hat on in during this time. So, no, I think Eddie Albert like dove into this because this was the thing that was going to. Save him from typecasting and make him into—I don't know what that he was thinking. I don't know what universe Eddie, Eddie Albert is like—an action star.
2: When Lee Marvin grabs him by the chest and slaps him around, do you think that there's an extra motivation there? As in, that's <laughs> Lee Marvin going, "What the fuck? Like, I would never, I would never, Eddie Albert, do what you're doing. In I would this never film. have taken this role." <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, but maybe it's Eddie Albert being like so like, – because he's already a very successful star, but he's also he – he won the bronze star in World War II. He was like a – he was a war hero. He was
2: already a right. hero. You have to own that personally to play this, I think.
1: I know that win is the wrong term to use for a, a military citation. I'm sorry I keep doing that. You win an Oscar. You don't win a bronze star. <laughs>
0: You earn it. He earned <laughs> it. You never retire from
2: the Marines.
3: <laughs>
2: there are a lot of good set pieces in this movie. I love our characters being holed up in a house, coming under fire, and needing to figure out how to escape that house. I thought that was a great scene. And the and the hopelessness of knowing that a cooney isn't going to be coming up behind for you. And that happened very early on in the film, I felt like. Yeah. If you're, if you're placing your conflicts around its runtime, I it really made me wonder what was going to happen on the back half. I, I like the setup
1: of that a lot, but I felt, I th- I felt like it was really badly staged and photographed because they're coming down that hill and you know like they've they've looked at the town from the distance and they've they're you know they've got the binoculars out and they're like wow the town is quiet too quiet (laughs) it's like in the movies when they say something's too quiet anyways let's run run down this grassy hill toward that house and you see all the angles like the Germans pop out with their water cooled you know gun nests and just start chewing them up and and you're just like Go jog left fifty yards, and the house is going to be in between you
2: and the gun. Just, just don't run right where you're running. Run a little bit over from there. There's criticizing the uh, the cinematographer for this film is a great move, Ben. Uh, at a a DP terrible at shooting people running, uh, Joseph Barak on camera for It's a Wonderful Life, <laughs> among many other films, films like Airplane and Blazing Saddles.
1: I don't think it's. I don't think that the DP picks the picks where the where the frame is going to be necessarily in a shot like this. I mean, like it's a it's a big shot with with dozens of actors in it, and it just it doesn't it doesn't sell the idea of what they're doing.
2: It makes the soldiers look dumb. I think they're constrained by their backlot. I don't think it could be done any other way. This is RKO backlot shit. This is this is like psych blue sky action. <laughs> I think the scene that that best embodies the case that you're making is when Jack Palance neglects to escape from the tank that's driving toward him. Like he makes <laughs> that critical so he makes that critical error of not making a turn. He just moves in a straight line and yeah. allows himself to get crushed by the tank. That's <laughs> I think that's the moment where you realize just how constrained this film is in terms of of where it can set up a camera and shoot things. Careful, It seemed like he would have had to, like,
1: stick his arm out and specifically put it under the tank tread.
2: Jack Palance had to do one-arm push-ups after being run over by a tank. Signature
0: move. That whole final scene where they're in the basement of this, still in the basement of that farmhouse, right? Although the basement of the farmhouse seems like it could contain a battalion of people. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah there's like an Ark of the covenant yeah. down there there's a lot of crates
0: and costa comes down like absolutely mangled run over by a tank he's gonna shoot cooney but he can't he just can't he's got those dead he's arms. he's got dead arms a lot of this movie felt like it was it was designed for the stage
1: yeah based on a play called fragile fox by norman brooks there you go
0: that explains a
1: lot. In the in the stage version, they didn't have uh, a couple of fake German tanks rolling around.
2: <laughs> yeah, they had one of those like mini Master P from the "Make 'Em Say A uh video size tanks that just like <laughs> drove through the background.
0: Well, so we should address that, right? the 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 fact that the army did not like the narrative of the of the bad lieutenant or the bad captain, they refused to let them use any of their jeeps. They couldn't use any jeeps. They couldn't use any guns. And so they basically made this movie using paper mache weapons, right?
1: Everything was begged, borrowed, or stolen. Uh, they had to buy a tank. Back when you could. Yeah, military surplus tank for $1,000. Imagine $1,000 tank. <laughs> and they rented another one. I actually have a goof here about the, uh, about the tanks. Yeah. Um, Thought you guys might like to hear. In every shot in which they appear, the, quote, German tanks, unquote, have external travel locks on their main gun, including while they are firing. These braces are mainly applied when the tank is being transported by ship or train, and it's to prevent the turret from shaking and damaging sensitive systems like the aiming mechanisms. However, any such device would be removed long before the tank enters combat and it makes aiming virtually impossible. That and thanks to recoil, the act of firing the gun in such a situation would not only damage the lock but also likely harm the very mechanisms the lock is supposed to help protect Mm -hmm. in the first place.
2: See, this is the thing. When you buy a tank, I feel like your your instinct is going to be to not take off all the plastic <laughs> and packaging right away. You want to really delight in that in that moment.
1: You leave those uh, those pieces of film on all the screens because uh, you want you want to peel it off like after you've used it for six months, and it's like you got a brand new screen. You want
2: to <laughs> prolong the feeling of a new tank, right?
1: I always wonder when you cast a you know a, a bunch of actors like like the the three guys at the top of the call sheet are veterans, and they get on set and like apparently don't speak up about the about the braces on the tanks guns. Like nobody tapped Aldrich on the shoulder shoulder and was like, "Hey, this looks super dumb. <laughs> you want to get those things removed before we shoot this scene?
2: Yeah, I can't imagine that even know. if you were out the night before power drinking with Lee Marvin, I don't know if you're going to be super observant the next
0: day. Uh, was it just like they got some tanks and drove them around in a, in a field and and then cut that stuff in?
1: In retrospect, I don't know if Jack Plants was ever actually on screen with one of the tanks. It always like cut from the underside of the tread to him going, <laughs>
2: <laughs> If it's so crucial to remove the braces from a tank before firing it, they should make it unfireable with the braces in place. Come on, guys! Well, the tank wasn't
0: firing. They put some. They put some flash powder that they had left over from. Uh, they use that circus yeah. stuff
2: when they shoot a person <laughs> out Kapow! of a cannon. Pow! Poof! And then the cannonball lands into a net to be reused in the next scene.
3: <laughs> that would be one method, I suppose.
2: I think it's really interesting that 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 the scene in the house didn't work for you guys. I felt like that was like the centerpiece scene for me and I I like the stress of getting into it and I love the double down of they're having to flee the thing and go through hell once again
0: partly it was that the Rickles of this movie Robert Strauss who we learned to love in Stalag 17 um, is kind of redoing that same role except cranked up a little bit of anybody in this movie that was unleashed, I really felt like he was unleashed. He felt like he was just improvising for a lot of the film and his character like extraneous or, or, or surplus to need in this movie in the sense that what is he doing except making noise over there, right? His anti-authoritarianism isn't needed because we've got plenty of anti-authoritarianism in Jack Palance who's threatened to stick a grenade up the commander's ass. And so all you get is this kind of, he's just a cavetcher And is it there for comedy?
1: There's no comedy in this movie. Well, he's one of several characters with Jewish-sounding surnames in this movie. And I kind of want, like, they do, like, discuss briefly, like, oh, we can't surrender to these Nazis because... That'll go badly for some of us and worse for others. And it was kind of a wink at the camera.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too. But but he's doing basically like Borscht Belt stand-up in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he added a level of claustrophobia to that cabin that maybe that's why he was there in the movie to just ratchet up the tension. But there were several points when the tension was high enough that I was like will you stop for just a second will you just stop it mm. <laughs> god we're about you know there's bullets coming in on all sides and you're like oh oh vault and it's like no just just cool it I guess he's beloved right so when he gets wounded nobody wants to leave him behind but I that was one of the things that kind of um made me feel like this this movie in 1956 was trying to was trying to do it all, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, movies of this time have the Rickles in them. Yeah, that's right. They couldn't get Rickles. Strauss was Rickles plus five, you know? God, I was reading about Strauss's life. He became incapacitated during his final years of life from the effects of multiple bouts of electroshock therapy applied to combat depression. Ugh. Damn. And then suffered a stroke that killed him. He's got that great comedy face. He's got that quality about him. Big face movie attack. Oh, so you know? many faces! Yeah, diversity of faces. Not a movie where it's hard to remember who each guy is. Yeah, they could all be wearing helmets, and you could tell them apart. Yeah,
1: and they mostly are. Like you know, you think about this being a uh, like a studio backlot in Southern California, and what a drag it's got to be to act in your heavy coats because you're trying to portray mm-hmm. Germany in winter. But uh, they look great. Great uniform movie. You implied that I was dragging the cinematographer earlier, and and I I really wasn't. I was dragging like like shot framing, but yeah. But it's a pretty movie. Like I really like how they mount a lot of the indoor shots. Like they they always find interesting objects to kind of look through.
2: Yeah, foreground, background stuff.
1: There's that you know set of cubbies that are full of forms that. Cooney is always interested in in his office that uh, they often stage the camera behind.
2: That one shot of Cooney's POV where we watch Costa walk around outside and and the camera's having to move like parallax style yeah. around that hole to capture him. How many takes that must have taken to do that uh, boggles? Yeah. So in the end, we get a kind of I am Spartacus scene at the bottom of the stairwell. Yeah. Uh, A scene that that felt like it was probably the reason the Defense Department didn't want to offer any tanks to a film (laughs) like this. What'd you make of it?
1: It's pretty rough. I mean, like the let's go down the line and each put a bullet in him.
2: That did not feel of this time. (laughs) It
1: didn't. I wonder if it would feel like Ten times more impactful than the play in in the play version you know than in the film like conceptually it's fucking crazy like yeah we fragged the officer and we're all gonna pull the trigger after his death to make it an unprosecutable crime mm-hmm. um you know like failing to anticipate how few shits Lee Marvin will give about it like like this is actually great for Lee Marvin because he can go home and tell Cooney's dad oh yeah he died gloriously in battle you raised a good one sir
2: and then that extra twist of the knife like this, this film could have ended in its own version of you know a tidy bow on it but Lee Marvin can't not get into it with woodruff he can't not needle him and woodruff can't just eat his shit finally that was the punctuation on the film that that may have been even more surprising than everyone shooting at a corpse at the end the expectation of well we sure got through that one and <laughs> and uh, woodruff's gonna be fine but instead he goes for the phone
1: yeah but in that moment, it made me think of uh, Paths of Glory and, yeah, Woodruff being a like even more naive Dax.
2: Yeah, yeah, great comparison. It felt like
0: he was director of the FBI, Kumi, who had his like her emails though uh, press release two days before the election. Like, no, I don't know. I I know you think you're doing the right thing here, but maybe the thing to do is take your promotion and shut the fuck
1: up.
2: It's so clear that Woodruff is going to take the fall. Lee Marvin is going to be fine. The rest of the gang is going to be fine. Like, it's so self-inflicted. Yeah. I feel like the film is suggesting an ambiguity there that it's unable to make a strong case for. Or Or am I wrong about that? Is the film fully believing that Woodruff's going to eat shit and this is an own goal. It leaves you
0: believing what you want to believe. If you're somebody in 1956 or now who who believes in justice, you can find whatever justice your heart desires there. I think what's interesting is if you take all the acting out of this movie, it's really a procedural you know, the idea that the war is almost over and all we have to do is ride this one or two days out and we're and we're home free, that's a fairly common last days of World War two trope. I mean in Vietnam movies it's always I've only got two more days before I rotate home. Right. You know, this is a movie where where it feels like Cooney could if he'd just if the dice had just rolled a different way the war could have been over and he would have gone home a hero and he would have ended up like a assistant manager at general mills. And you know, and right now I would probably be fixing up his mid-century modern house. Aside from the acting acting, the rest of the movie is like, like even the fragging, the whole idea of all of them shooting, all of them shooting the body is that Woodruff all of a sudden has this this conscience a conscience that wouldn't allow him to rat on Cooney to Bartlett when Costa demanded it but now a conscience that's going to turn himself in as the murderer
2: Captain. I mean would it not take everyone else down with him Well, too? yeah it's
0: it's it's just it's this kind of free-floating conscience that um, that attaches itself to certain situations. I think you see this a lot in people that that think of themselves as ethical, and they they just don't realize that their ethical system is on a paper plate, and they kind of carry it around with them, and they think that it's they think it's written in the in the rock of the world.
2: They think it's Chinette, but it's not. John, it's
0: not Chinette. It's <laughs>
2: that It's that weak ass shit. You got to double or triple up on.
0: Yeah, it's a freaking red solo cup and some. Uh, paper plates with little daisies on them. But it ends up being about faith in bureaucracy and faith that somewhere up the line cuz we cuz we spend this whole movie feeling like Colonel Bartlett is there to save us. Colonel Bartlett is wise, Colonel Bartlett has Colonel Bartlett knows
1: and he has all the guile in the in the entire movie. He's he he like a monopoly on guile. And he ends up being
0: corrupt but somehow Woodruff And this movie has faith that Bartlett's superior, the the general that we never meet. Somehow the general is some kind of Christian saint who's going to, despite what it does to everybody's career and the conduct of the war, the general's going to get to the bottom of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's been an illegal killing here. We're going to get to the bottom Uh, of it, Sergeant
0: Elias, Sergeant Barnes. (laughs) If there's been an illegal killing here, there will be a court-martial. I'm sorry, he said Staff Sergeant Elias, Staff Sergeant Barnes. I, I, I can never leave that out.
2: <laughs> to interrogate the ending of this film is to relate it to a defense department that didn't want a, message, a story like this told. And if what it is saying is that justice wins the day and that good people do the right thing at the very end... Is the Defense Department then saying that no one's going to understand the nuance of that in a film like this to to get it, and instead are just going to see a dead officer at the bottom of a stairwell?
0: A cheaper movie, and I think a modern movie, would probably end with a boom shot of Lee Marvin being led away in handcuffs uh, by a bunch of military police people swooping in. You know, it would have given us that final denouement where justice is served. Um, And what this movie does is doesn't wrap it up quite with a bow like that. There's all that 50s ambiguity.
1: I mean, I feel like this movie could have ended on the boom shot that it almost does of just Woodruff just walking away. Like instead it like gives us the boom shot of him walking away and then arriving at a a phone and picking it up.
2: I wish it had. It's such a different feeling. I, I agree with you, John. It's such a different feeling if it had ended 10 seconds before it did.
0: Yeah, when when Bartlett puts his arm on his shoulder and goes, all right, Captain Woodruff, how you doing now? How you like me now? If Woodruff had just given a resigned shrug and gone, huh, Captain Woodruff, all right.
2: The film is so comfortable with ambiguity that, that they're just differently ambiguous. If you end on the crane shot and the walk through town versus the conversation on the phone. I think you could get with either. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, Attack is the kind of movie I thought we'd be watching all along on Friendly Fire, right? The, the Lee Marvin, the black and white, the, the RKO studio quality of it. But it's so different from the kind of Friendly Fire movie that I'd see most because of how subversive it is. And I think this film's proximity to the end of the war is notable because, like, I feel like you get a lot of dads coming back from this war receiving the sort of, of worship that a returning veteran does, and they are filled with stories like this, stories that are probably untold, stories that probably took 10 or 12 years to see the light of day. And so for the film being a a certain kind of heat but being different from what i had expected i think we're going to use the fake gas can full of booze bottles inside as the <laughs> as the rating system right that's that's the true embodiment of the thing the expectation and the reality
1: i thought for sure it was going to be the hand carved bazooka holster
2: <laughs> bazooka handle what was that about
1: they set it up so much at the beginning of this movie that you know you knew it was gonna it was gonna come into play. It was like there's gonna be there's gonna be armor in that town because yeah. he was carving a bazooka handle.
2: It's it's a sort of mirror image of of a Mallory suitcase of explosives. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's utility in that suitcase. There's a, there's consumption in this one. So for that reason, we're gonna be raiding attack. Attack on a scale of one to five fake gasoline cans. You know, after saying that, I realize it should have been exclamation points. Mm. One to five exclamation points. <laughs> Am I missing an opportunity here?
1: I don't know because it's not on the 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 title that comes up in the film. The uh, Saul Bass designed title does not feature the exclamation point.
2: I think exclamation point is the best punctuation for a war film. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I think
1: question mark personally,
2: it's definitely not colon. We know that. (laughs) So those gas cans are corrupted, right? And that uh, the corruption brings me to a quote that I read about Robert Aldrich, and it goes like this. My main anti-war argument was not the usual war is hell, but the terribly corrupting influence that war can have on the most normal average human beings and the terrible things it makes them capable of and that they shouldn't be capable of otherwise. Aldrich added that the film was meant to be a sincere plea for peace. Did
0: you guys feel that? Didn't get a plea for peace out of it, no.
2: Getting back to my earlier point, I just wonder what effect this film had on, on the returning veterans and how this might have flipped the script on how those people were treated. To think that there were... Situations like this that may have been happening all around them is is a challenging idea as as war films go. So I like I like that kind of challenge to a thing. I like the challenge of bringing morale to a conversation with a person above you. We didn't talk about that scene, but 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 the idea that there is a chain of command that you can run issues to and that morale is a big part of Cooney's issues that he brings to this group is sort of laughed off, like like in the sense that there may, might not be room for morale complaints in this army. The anxiety of the film is something that was present to me throughout. I felt like it was effective in that way. And it made me think a lot about the different kinds of people who fight wars and the different ways that that they are inspired toward bravery. There's a moment that that Cooney is given that inspiration, only it's it has a a terrible outcome, but you know, there's a button that each of us has. And it's it's up to guys like Lee Marvin to find it, I guess. So attack looks like it's gonna be one thing, but it's something else on the inside. And I think that quality makes it better. I'm gonna give it Four and a half gas cans full of liquor inside. How many bottles are in each gas can? I feel like there's 3. So if you're going to do a, a non-even distribution of gas cans, you got to keep in mind
1: Oh, I think there were like 6. There's 3 on each side. Really? Yeah, that thing is loaded.
2: That's that's too heavy. No one's going to carry around a gas can that heavy.
1: How do you how much do you think it weighs if it's full of gas, Adam?
2: I did do-
1: <laughs> How could you put bottles of
0: liquor in a gas can and make it heavier than if it was just because of
2: the glass, guys? Glass isn't heavier than glass is heavier than a liquid. And there's not (laughs) bottles
1: made out of gold. There's also lots of straw in between the bottles. Overall, the density is less, not more.
2: That's my score. You guys can interrogate this when you when you give it your own rating. This movie did
1: not really work for me. I thought that it tried a lot of things and had some some interesting ideas that didn't fully come together. I think that it smacked of a director that didn't have a great sense of how to direct action yet. I've, I mean, I think that like by the time... The Dirty Dozen comes around. He was a master of it. But in this movie, Robert Aldrich like totally failed to make convincing combat scenes. And so we're left with the the story. And I think, you know, if, if the story had really worked for me, I may have been quicker to forgive the stuff that didn't work about the film. But boy, if this was his sincere plea for peace Uh, (laughs) much much like hiding booze in a gas can he kind of buried the lead with this film and i think that maybe maybe what it is is it just has his has too many things like too many too many ideas that it doesn't it doesn't quite resolve too many too many ricklesy side characters that it doesn't quite know how to um use to good effect i'm gonna give this two and a half phony booze containing gas
2: cans you know what happens ben when you give a low review to a lee marvin film the ghost of (laughs) lee marvin is now in play
1: (laughs) shit dog (laughs) lee marvin was not the problem I had with this film I think he, he really stood out as one of the best parts and I mean like there's a lot I like about it I just don't think it like works overall I think it it just kind of collapsed under its own weight for me
0: I feel like the thing um, I was I'm surprised that the rating system wasn't Jack Palance's rigor mortis scream <laughs> <laughs> After Palance dies, his face is uh, contorted in an open-mouthed uh, scream of horror, and the director and the film wants us to be sure that it's really, really burned into our retina by um, by featuring it three more times. But that was that was an example of just like the the kitchen sink that got thrown into this movie of like well let's see we you know he's dead and jack plants is like what if i do this and the director's like sure that's great <laughs> and i think it just cast a light on on so many decisions in the movie which felt like like we were watching a production being made by theater people and you know and I, well, I don't usually say theater people dripping with derision because some of my best friends are theater people. We see it in film throughout the history of film, right? The crossover between Broadway and Hollywood, the, the, the people that are doing downtown theater in black box uh, rooms. And then they bring that aesthetic to the, or those sensibilities to Hollywood. And they make a, they make a movie and it blows away everybody. The world is changed forever because you know, some, some like New Yorkers in tights figured out a way to convey human emotion a certain way. And this just feels like an example of, of what happens if that fails. I do like some of the sort of political commentary, but we see that in all kinds of war movies. We don't need to, we don't need just to get that from attack. So, uh, so I think it's worth watching as a kind of time capsule as like a glimpse of what what people were thinking and and how different the world of 1956 could be but on the on the main i think that this is a 2.75 uh, gas cans full of booze bottles so what does that mean that's like 6 12 let's say there's 6 in a can i'm i'm going with ben here 12 and then what are we looking at eighteen maybe 20? 20 bottles of booze
1: two seven five wow I was the low the low rating on this one
2: that feels mm-hmm. like a rarity to me
1: it does feel rare I'm dogging it but
0: there's there there was enough there to <laughs> there was enough there
2: I think it belongs I think we see some friendly fire films that are like ah right, you can skip this this trash I think for its failures, I think it's it's trying to say something interesting and I just watch it for the acting. <laughs> watch it for that <laughs> face. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Jack Valance makes a lot of face all the way through this movie, but he really tops himself at the end.
2: Whenever John calls me, that's the face that pops up as his profile <laughs> photo. <laughs> all right, what face does your guy make, Ben? Who's your guy? Um
1: boy a tough question to answer (laughs) in a movie you hate it so much i guess uh i didn't hate it so much i just didn't like it that much um i suppose woodruff will be my guy because i think that like while i criticize his naivete in this film i kind of see him making all the choices that i imagine i would make given if i was confronted with this set of problems like like i think i would go go pick up the phone at the end of this movie like i'm disappointed in him for the same reason that i'm disappointed in myself so
2: (laughs) you know what (laughs) if you're expecting john or or me to uh (laughs) to talk you out of that for any reason i (laughs) you're gonna be waiting a long time You are that kind of person. I'm not fishing for a compliment.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm dragging myself. It. I've seen you knowingly. do
2: it. Oh.
0: Yeah. All right, Ben. We finally worked it out. Well, I'm gonna have to call. I'm gonna have to make that call and fuck it all up for everybody.
1: I I don't think that I could go forward knowing that I earned the rank of captain from this.
2: Wow, perfect guy selection by you. Ben, nice one. Uh, my guy is going to be Tolliver. Damn it! Why didn't you ask me first? Because I didn't want Tolliver taken from me. Go ahead. <laughs> Tolliver kicks ass because he's the sniper, and I I tend to love the snipers of war films. He's so capable in a film riddled with incapability. He's great. He shoots that guy out of the church steeple. Love that scene. But the scene that I love the most from Tolliver is when Cooney offers him that drink. And Tolliver's been in the periphery of this film for a long time, but he gets his big scene here because he turns down that drink a couple of times. And he says, back where I come from, we don't drink with another man unless we respect him. And that was- Is that why you never drink with me, Adam? It was so withering. Uh, oh, it just gave me the chills. And it's, uh, it's Buddy Epson from Beverly Hillbillies. I didn't know he had that kind of gear in him <laughs> as an actor. Like Wizard of Oz, Andy Griffith's show, Buddy Epson. Love that. And he's, and, he, and what he does to Cooney in that scene definitely made him my guy.
0: Well, shit. You know, I don't <laughs> normally take a guy uh, that somebody else has taken. That's, kinda, that's, that's one of the things that we don't do.
1: You have a code, John. We try to to avoid that on Friendly Fire. The
0: great thing about Buddy Epson, he's not my guy because you stole him from me, Adam, but the great (laughs) thing about him is that Buddy Epson was in Beverly Hillbillies, uh, which was a huge hit, and then Eddie Albert uh, was in Green Acres, which was a contemporaneous show But with the reverse plot, right? Beverly Hillbillies. Buddy Ebsen makes it rich and moves his hillbilly family to Beverly Hills. Green Acres. Eddie Albert was a rich snob and moved his family out to the country and was dealing with um, yokels. How
2: about that?
0: And they were like, um, they were basically the Partridge Family and the Brady Bunch of five years earlier with this like this fish out of water premise. So the two guys uh you know their careers like connected here in this movie but in in the end I think maybe even Beverly Hillbillies was a bigger hit than Green Acres so but no my guy's going to be Lee Marvin <laughs> Of course <laughs> damn strong pick I really really just I I did not start doing Friendly Fire feeling like Lee Marvin was my favorite actor of the 60s and 50s. That was not how I went into this. I always kind of felt like, oh yeah, Lee Marvin is in there kind of with all those guys, just sort of one of those guys. But Lee Marvin steals every movie he's in for me. Sometimes it's just his hat and he doesn't have an incredibly broad range, right? I mean, Lee Marvin never is playing anybody with any sensitivity you know in this movie like he's morally compromised but kind of in every movie he's he's morally compromised (laughs) he's always taking some group of criminals and and putting them to work so lee marvin once again i might just pick him as my guy in every movie we see with him in it
2: i mean that's a pretty great policy I mean, even if you were to do that blind, like just going forward, any Lee Marvin film is likely gonna gonna result in a Lee Marvin guy. Could hardly do better than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's see if we'll do better than this film on next week's episode of Friendly Fire. For that, we got to go to that 120 oh, sided die. die, John. Where's
0: the die?
2: John's John's oh, losing his glasses hope the day never comes that he loses that die the The dies in it
0: the die gets moved around because i got infestation of kids around here okay here we go here comes the die
1: Seventy-six. Seventy-six. A 1992 film directed by Keith Gordon set in the Ardennes in World War II. A midnight clear psychological drama plays out at Christmas. USGIs hold an isolated cabin in the Ardennes against a handful of Germans cut off from their main force. Combat weary and short of rations, both sides Are determined to survive Peter Berg and Kevin Dillon Hmm.
2: Peter Berg in front of the camera
1: yeah we've seen uh, at least one film that he directed but this will be one that uh he's in
2: about that
1: Wow Ethan Hawke Gary Sinise what yeah I can't believe I've never heard of this movie
2: early 90s easy to be forgotten if you're an early 90s war film I think
1: yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, a particular time, I guess. Well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, in the meantime we're gonna leave it with Robs, 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 Robs. So for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison to the victor. Go the
3: spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum bun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Ditmer. Need more friendly fire to cuddle close to during the holidays? Well, why not take a journey into our back catalog? Last year, at this time, we reviewed Hamburger Hill from 1987. It's a movie that follows an American infantry squad attempting to take a hill in Vietnam while also dealing with the psychological stress that the war takes on its soldiers. Would you like to support Friendly Fire? Well you can do that by heading to MaximumFun.org join and for as little as $5 a month you'll gain access to our bonus pork chop feed and all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun. And please. Don't forget that you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. That's all for today, fellas. If you have a request, send it to me, Care of Armed Forces Radio Service. Goodbye. MaximumFund.org.
2: Comedy and culture.
3: Artist owned.
2: Audience supported.